Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, November 13th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Kishore Hari is off this week as he wraps up the Bay Area Science Festival. If you want to attend any of their events, well, I guess it's too late. But you can find out more at bayareascience.org. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Looking for fun trivia to impress your family and friends this holiday season? Look no further. Since 1987, Portable Press has provided facts and trivia to those who crave it with the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. Not only will you be entertained, but you'll know a whole lot more about the world around you. Just go to portablepress.com minds to download a 20-page free sample of the new 30th anniversary title, Uncle John's Old Faithful Bathroom Reader. Or follow them on social media at Portable Press for more trivia and frequent book giveaways. As many of you know, I have a background in neuroscience, and I'm always interested in finding out what is at the cutting edge of the field. This summer, I went to the meeting of the Organization for Human Brain Mapping and found out about some really cool work being done scanning brains, not just of kids, but of fetuses. And I wanted to talk to the person who does that. Mariah Thomason is a pediatric neuroscientist at Wayne State University in Detroit, and she is a pioneer at brain imaging fetuses. Why, might you ask? Should we image the brains of fetuses as they're still developing and they have yet to be born? Well, the answer is, is that we might be able to find out about not only how their development is going, but whether or not they are at risk at developing problems after birth. And maybe we can even go in and solve some of those solutions ultimately before they're born. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Mariah Thomason. Are you a dinner party host looking for a foolproof way to get perfect meats, poultry, and fish? With Jules Sous Vide, every home cook can create chef-level dishes thanks to precise temperature control. Jules makes sure your food will never over or undercook, so you're free to focus on your guests or whip up some amazing sides. There are more than 100 recipes in the video-rich Jules app to help you cook almost every protein, from meat to poultry to fish to eggs, plus desserts, veggies, and more. And if your guests are running late or your apps and cocktails are taking you longer than expected, it's not a problem. Jewel is ready when you are. Your food won't overcook. Jewel, perfect food every time. 
To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use the code MINDS to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code MINDS. Mariah Thomason, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I was so excited to hear about your work from a friend of mine at the um, Organization for Human Brain Mapping Conference. And I, you know, it was, it was the first time I'd come across it. And I'm so fascinated even just to hear about the nuts and bolts of how you do it. So how is it that you started to do neuroimaging of fetuses? So, you know, it's it's interesting. It's not really an advance in the technology itself. There wasn't some massive methodological breakthrough that opened up this new window. Um, in fact, it was actually the way that we think about data and the way that we use data um, that has changed a lot within the field of functional MRI over the past several years. And the transition that happened was that really the paradigm had been to perform task-based fMRI, so functional MRI, where you present a stimulus to the participant and you look at how areas of the brain respond to that stimulus. And then when you analyze the data, you're basically asking the data which parts of the brain lit up when we presented the stimulus of interest. And so the data that we showed, those blobs on brains that you saw in all of those publications over the years, were pictures of areas that were activated during a task. But we know that the brain is active all of the time. And so what really changed in our thinking was how to deal with that. And so what happened was a researcher put an individual in the scanner. This was Bharat Biswal, actually quite a number of years ago. And he asked that person to just remain completely still. And he measured signals from the brain in the absence of a task. So brain function, just doing what the brain does at rest. And what he showed was that regions of the motor system are talking to each other all of the time. He was able to take the signal out of the left motor cortex, correlate it with what was happening all over the brain, and the result that emerged was a perfect map of the entire motor system. So this was a picture of a system, even though the person was remaining entirely still. And so what that did is it sort of opened a door up, and it actually took us a long time to open this door as researchers. Um, to the fact that we could extract from the brain, even when the person wasn't doing a task, neural systems, not just the motor system, but other sensory motor systems, higher order cognitive systems, we could do this without presenting a stimulus to the subject. So that brings us back to your original question, which is, you know, how did you get into the fetus? Well, obviously the fetus for, <laughs> for many reasons is encased entire, inside of an entire another human being, so we can't easily present stimulus. So this opened up an opportunity uh, to look at spontaneous signals coming out of the fetal brain and to map the neural connectional architecture of those functional systems across fetal development. And so how does it physically work? I mean, I, you know, I've been in an fMRI scanner a number of times, and I've been pregnant, and I'm just trying to put the physics of those two things together. Can you describe what it's like? Yeah, well, first, it's really beautiful. I mean, the, the idea that we're able to um, create another human inside of our body is pretty phenomenal. Um, and also these moms are pretty extraordinary as well. Um, but it's not really that different. A mom will go into the MRI machine, unlike when you went in, she'll go in feet first. 
and we'll get her really comfortable. We're talking a lot of extra padding and pillows because pregnancy isn't all too comfortable and putting yourself in machine. Um, our machine's a little bit bigger um, in terms of the bore size. Um, so they're, you know, they're able to be a little bit more comfortable. Um, they can lay on whatever side's comfortable. Um, you know, you kind of have to be dynamic and flexible in a way that you're not in a standard MRI. You know, once you go in a typical MRI, people say, don't move, stay still. In our case, we do want the lady to stay still where we're scanning, but if she wants to make any kind of adjustments throughout the protocol, we'll, we'll shift her, we'll move her. If the signal's not good, we'll rearrange her. This is not um, the same in that regard. And the coil that we use is just a really lightweight, bendable, flexible, non-threatening looking. It's kind of like styrofoamy looking. We just put it around her belly. We put um, a bunch of padding around that. Um, and... I mean, it's re it's honestly really not that different. It's an abdominal coil that just rests lightly on her torso. And so, you know, one of the main difficulties of putting anyone in the scanner is that they have to stay still. <laughs> and um, so how does that work for a fetus? <laughs> so, despite my best attempts, I'm not able to ask the fetus to remain still. Um, but we do know that from doing this work, and I have to say, when I started years ago, I had no idea what to expect. There weren't that many people doing this kind of work. And I just thought, who knows? Who knows what we're going to find? Um, but now that I've done it for five years, six years, um, I know that the fetus alternates between periods of quiescence and periods of movement. I know that um, some fetuses are going to give a really good signal just because of the position that they're in um, or the amount of space that they have or even interactions with um, the organs of the mother around the fetus can cause different susceptibility um, in our images. Um, so we get a lot of variation, and we really don't know at the moment that we put a lady into the scanner what it is that we're going to see. But um, because it's functional MRI, we're able to take and gather more data than we need. And basically what we do is we throw away the times when the fetus is moving. So, And it turns out that that's about half of our data. So if I acquire, let's say, 20 minutes of resting state data, just letting the brain spontaneously do what it's doing in the fetus, I'm going to expect to retain about 10 minutes in which the fetus was very um, still. And that's very usable data. And so one more sort of technical question before you tell us what you're finding. Uh, how old generally are the fetuses that you're looking at? Um, when we started, we scanned as young as uh, 18 weeks. But really, um, I think it's, I mean, after doing this for a while, I really feel that the value and most of what we're going to discover is going to come from the third trimester of pregnancy because the brain is just frankly, bigger at that point. The vascular system, which is what our signals are based on, is more mature. Um, and it's it's just, it. my sense at this point without, you know, enough people doing this research to really know concretely is that we probably are going to have findings that are most meaningful, uh, meaning findings that are best able to tell us about the future health of that individual brain over the life course are probably going to come from later stages of development, both because what the brain is doing in terms of modeling and remodeling at that time are probably more indicative of long-term um, system function, and because our measurements are probably just better able to do what we need them to do at that time. So tell us a little bit about what, what you found so far. Um, well, you know, initially the work was centered on being able to be sure that the signals that we were measuring were in fact meaningful because we, you know, we don't have proof of concept or gold standard for 
functional systems of the fetal brain because until now we haven't had a method for measuring function. Most of what we knew about the fetal brain development came from postmortem research or from pictures, anatomical pictures. So, you know, if you open a window into this previous black box and you have a technique and that technique has, you know, errors and unknowns, you really just have to really first establish that the princ- in principle that it works. And so our first findings were really um, to demonstrate that in utero, we could measure functional systems um, by replicating what we knew should be true over development, such as the fact that we should see increases in cross-hemispheric connectivity between the right and left side, between homologous structures that would increase in strength with advancing age, right? The brain is becoming wired up. The corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres is developing. Communication is increasing. Those types of things were sort of the first um, findings because we needed to sort of establish the methodology. Once we got past that, um, there, there, you know, a lot of what we've done is to ask ourselves, are there high order functional systems and motor systems and sensory systems and how are these developing? And what we find is what you would expect is an increase in for initially local connectivity. So those branches are building themselves out. And then um, across gestational development, you begin to see the long range connections that we know will exist later. And it almost seems that what we're seeing is that the brain is initially kind of connecting up to everybody. So beginning locally, spreading distally, and probably what maturation across fetal life looks like is a lot of outgrowth. Um, The pruning processes really are not taking place until that beginning birth transition, which is also not surprising because we know from neonatal imaging that a lot of those pruning processes are happening in the first years. It really seems like gestation is a time where you're just making a lot of connections. And it kind of makes sense neurobiologically because we know that there are a lot of shifts in the chemical signaling across the birth transition. And we also know that the environment is radically different. I mean, what a brain needs to do when it's in a mom versus out in the world is very different. So it seems that it would be a smart way to design a brain to have the processes of growth being very um, rampant during this time um, with minimal input, um, although I do think environment does play a big role, and then to let this sort of the early environment begin to shape that more as you interact and learn. I mean, babies learn. They learn really yeah. rapidly. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I think any, any, anyone who has taken a baby on a long haul flight uh, can just, you know, it, it would just be terrible if that same, very same baby in that same developmental stage was like inside the womb. <laughs> like that, you know, that baby would be so bored in this uh, environment. Um, but, the other another thing that kind of this brings up for me is to what extent do you see individual variability? I mean, are you seeing that um, fetuses tend to be pretty similar compared with uh, babies or or adults? I mean, certainly we see a lot of variability in functional activation in the adult brain. Um, there's a big push towards looking at individual differences. Uh, how similar are fetuses? Well, we we see lots of variation in fetal brain development, which is meaningful and um, maybe not altogether surprising. Um, Some of the things that our group has found is that fetuses that will go on to be born preterm have uh, reduced or diminished connectivity, particularly in uh, what appears to be somewhat a left lateral uh, language region, a region that will later support language function. 
Um, and this weaker connectivity prior to preterm delivery was correlated with how long they gestated. So those fetuses that had a longer gestational course, even though they were preterm, all of the cases I'm talking about right now are preterm, they, um, their gestational course, those that um, were born closer to their due date had connectivity that looked more like the control comparison fetuses. Another thing that we found... So, so sorry, let me, mm-hmm. let me stop you there for a second. Yeah. Even early on, so like you're saying at, you know, six or seven months, you can predict on the basis of brain activity whether that baby will be born <laughs> preterm. That, I mean, that well, seems like, that seems shocking to me. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's, it's a really exciting finding, I think, because we have long thought. I mean, we see differences. Children that are born preterm demonstrate, um, you know, are three, three to five times more likely to demonstrate developmental uh, problems. Uh, rates of autism, ADHD are much higher in these children. Language delays, we know that they have these neurodevelopmental concerns. And, they, and for many years, we've thought, you know, that these probably originate in utero. So the study was exciting because it demonstrated for the first time that in fact, the brain is, does seem to be developing differently um, in those fetuses that will be born preterm. And I'm not going to point a finger at sort of causality because we're really performing correlation in these studies. But I will say that I think that whatever it is that is the um, ontological or ideological process that's going to lead to preterm delivery, um, a major candidate being inflammation, probably is influencing both the gestational course and neurological or central nervous system development. Um, and in terms of what you asked, which is about prediction, you know, we're really careful to say that we're able to predict. We just, I mean, I'm, I'm very hesitant to say something like that because it's leaps and bounds, I think, from where we're going to, how we're going to apply this tool. I have different ideas about, you know, the meaning or how we can use this um, translationally. But it does tell us maybe who amongst these cases maybe is at higher risk. So, you know, a mom can demonstrate clinical symptoms that um, suggest she's going to deliver early. A short cervix, um, certainly premature uh, rupture of the membranes. Um, but but the additional information that we see about brain development may coach us on early interventions. And even in utero, uh, there's new data demonstrating that you can change brain development by what you expose the fetus to in utero. And I do mean human fetuses. So it, it's like possible that there's something related to what nutrients the fetus is receiving from, you know, the mother or what the environmental conditions are. Is it, is it like that? Or is it sort of the mother's stress level? So hormone changes? Do we have any idea of, you know, how these kinds of variables interact with fetal brain development? I think we will very soon. I mean, the technique is so new, but these are the these are the dreams. These are the motivations. This is why we started this kind of a project and why I hope a lot of other groups start working in this area because for so many years as developmental scientists, we've said, you know, we know that probably that prenatal period is playing such an important role in shaping brain development and we've had to kind of nod our heads to it because we don't have access to that time point, but I think now we do. Um, One of our most recent studies that has not yet been published looked at the association between prenatal stress, which we absolutely believe has effects on child development. And we know this because women who are experienced prenatal stress have children that go on to manifest um, much higher um, behavioral problems, challenges in school, ADHD, um, and dysregulation of their um, stress response systems physiologically. Um, And 
But we haven't been able to see if whether that risk is transferred in utero. And the study that we did looked at um, 47 moms, assessed them across a number of stress domains, depression, anxiety across pregnancy. This was a highly stressed demographic group, um, primarily low-resource urban minority women, many unpartnered. And what we found was that the neural connectivity, the signature of global neural architecture was different. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm hesitant to say exactly what it was because it's an unpublished result. But the fetuses of mothers that were highly stressed had uh, strong differences in total connectional uh, properties um, than did the non-stressed counterparts. You know, this really sort of turns on its head a lot of the sort of layperson's view that so much of a child's, you know, behaviors and and sort of brain development, brain function, you know, comes from genetics if we can see those changes already at birth. Um, But, you know, even though we know like the uterine environment has an effect, I think it's been largely uh, set aside as either we don't understand how big an effect or sur- surely it can't be that big an effect because, you know, most babies turn out okay. And, you know, it's like there's this whole push to alleviate mothers of some guilt of like, you know, every time you eat the donut, you know, are you making your child more likely to have diabetes later? But, you know, it's it's interesting to me to think that maybe in some ways, as we learn what are these conditions during the uh, gestational period, that might give us a sense, too, of how much of the child's later behavior and development and so forth is genetic versus environmental, although obviously it's hard to tease those two things apart. Yeah, and room for optimism. <laughs> because because if we you know if we can see that we can have an effect then certainly there's room for improvement we can start thinking about this time and how to care for women and what the best practices are so that's exciting you know if we hadn't if we hadn't thought of this as the first environment we couldn't do much about it also what regions we find differences in give us a hint they give us a clue they allow us to generate new hypotheses about what you know how those stress functions, how those stress systems um, are in fact affecting which specific neural pathways, right? So that's insight. That's insight into the mechanistic pathways. So can you describe some of those and any of those specific findings that, you know, have, have you made any, have you found any correlations that are sort of surprising in their precision? Yeah, a couple of surprising findings, one in the posterior cingulate gyrus and one in the cerebellum. So the posterior cingulate gyrus Uh, results is really interesting because we think of this as an important component of what's called the default mode network of the brain. The default mode network is your mind-wandering network. It's a network of the brain that's really important for introspective thinking, rumination, kind of the day-to-day activities of your brain when your brain's not being told exactly what to do. You're not deploying attention for some high-demanding cognitive task. So can we just pause and sort of define the difference between sort of resting state connectivity and default mode network for our listeners? Yeah, for sure. So the default mode network is a set of regions um, comprised of the posterior cingulate, medial prefrontal regions, some uh, parietal regions. And essentially, this is a set of areas that is very active when you're not deeply focused. But what's very interesting is that when you do... deploy attentionally demanding resources, this area quiets down. So this is different from resting state. Resting state refers to just what the brain does all of the time, which inc- which includes all of the brain. So every bit of your brain is active 
all of the time, despite what you were once told about only using 13% of your brain. <laughs> the brain That's not true at all. Um, the brain is always doing what it does. Um, but this is a particular network within the brain, just like a visual network or an auditory network, a set of regions that's highly connected to one another that serves a function. And it seems that, um, you know, we all have that experience of, you know, reading a book, for example, and you realize that you stopped reading quite a while ago, your mind has wandered off the page. We have these probably t really important processes that we all understand to be true through experience where our brain sort of has its own agenda. And I think that the default mode network is kind of that agenda. And it's actually, you know, really important for health and disease and cognitive function because if, um, these, this negative tension between um, cognitive control regions and the default mode network breaks down. Um, we see um, we see that happening in uh, neurological disorders, and we see it's associated with cognitive ability. So therefore, it's behaviorally relevant. So, anyways, we're built this way. We're set up with this system that's very important for, uh, let's say, taking a break. But it's not at all taking a break. It's doing something that's essential for human cognition. And what we found was this negative opposition between the PCC and other brain regions is already present in the fetus and increases with fetal age. And the reason that that's surprising is because I think that we have, in a way, anthropomorphized the fetal brain to say, well, hey, the fetus doesn't need to do anything high order. So why would it need those systems? Most of what we talk about in early development has to do with maturations of, maturation of sensory motor systems prior to maturation of higher order cognitive systems, which we certainly think of this as being. And I think that what this finding tells us is that perhaps brain areas don't know that they're destined for greatness. They don't know that I'm going to be really important higher order. They just are following these very, these very long, very essential genetically based programs and maybe the establishment of the PCC and its negative connectivity, sorry, the posterior cingulate and its connectivity to other brain regions is in fact formative to the total establishment of neural architecture. And so that was a really exciting finding to me. It's one that I want to pursue because I think it allows us to maybe think differently about, you know, how the brain is developing and how the brain developing gives us insight into its overall organization. Yeah, it's sort of this, this sense that, you know, we, we have the building blocks for what will become uniquely human or we think of as uniquely human functions. <laughs> and, you know, not only, you know, for me, I, I always like seeing not only this, the, the sort of building blocks of this in, in human development, but also in other species, you know, so, so it sort of gives us a sense of also where we came from of like how, you know, mother nature, natural selection, like tinkered up systems from other species that maybe, you know, weren't so critical for what is different in a human being's experience. Absolutely true. Because, because you can ask yourself, well, why is it like that? <laughs> you can say, you know, why, why does this animal preserve this area across, you know, and in, in, like, for example, the, the olfactory bulb, it's huge in many rodents. I mean, and it's guiding behavior. And as humans, we don't really think of that sense as being critical. But I think, I think olfactory development is probably one of our earliest navigational systems. 
So it gives us a hint, just like you're saying, this is a critical system because it's so critical across species. The second area I was going to point out to you is the cerebellum. And that's another one of those, you know, preserved across species uh, evolutionary systems. Why do we have this cerebellum? Why do we have this little brain that sticks off of the back of our big brain? Um, and it's another area where we see differences as a function of the experience of the mom um, in the fetus. And I think that that's really um, telling us something important about the role of the cerebellum. Yeah, I feel like the cerebellum is like this like mysterious thing that, you know, we were taught you know, in, in early neuroanatomy, oh, it's just about fine motor timing. It's just about, you know, high and eye kind of coordination stuff. Like, you know, it allows you to, to do these, these fine movements. And then you realize through years of studying neuroimaging papers that it's like activated in everything. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like it yeah. seems to have a role, like a functional role in so many different aspects of what our brains do and what they're for. Um, so yeah, to me, it, it feels like and, and yet like we ignore it so often, like, oh, it's just this like, you know, lower, almost like barely brainstem kind of like yeah. uninteresting thing. Yeah, I, I, we're definitely I'm definitely rooting for the cerebellum. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that gets me to this question of, can you see kind of any task related? Have you tried to look for task related activation in fetuses? You know, we hear often there's, you know, obviously, there's huge interest in how to make a how to build a better baby, right? And so there's this huge industry of like, oh, you know, play Mozart to your fetus. And that Per, that fetus is more likely to have a higher IQ. You know, you know, we know that that's those are myths. But what have have you seen any kind of um, ha, or have you looked at all at kind of task related activation and has that given you any insights? So my group probably won't pursue those types of studies, and I'll tell you why. It really is because I don't think it's easy to control stimulus presentation to a fetus, and certainly groups have done that, but. Imagine, for example, that you're putting sound and you're putting it on the abdomen of the mom. You take an MRI picture, you check the fetal head position, but maternal adiposity could differ, um, alertness of the fetus during the application could differ. There are a lot of reasons that that's an unconstrained study. But I think what you could do and what I would be interested in doing um, is you could have a treatment condition. So you could have fetuses that you play the Mozart for across, you know, six weeks. And we know neuroplasticity is very rapid. And then you could look at sort of the before after. You could look at, you know, SSRIs during pregnancy. You could look at, and I think those sort of those environmental prolonged exposure studies, I think those are going to be the really interesting ones. Just for the reason I said, it's very hard to control stimulus presentation. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I'm just saying that um, I would do it trying to exert the best control that I could under a situation that's hard to control. Yeah. And the sort of clinical trial approach seems to me yeah, much more interesting, too, because it's more akin to what would be happening in the you know, outside world, outside of the lab. But I wonder about you know how difficult it would be to get compliance amongst your participants, since you know any, any mother you know, is, is motivated to create the best environment possible for their fetus. And so like, if they knew they were in a study in which they couldn't play Mozart, but I don't know, you know, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> well, what would how would the control arm react? Would they comply with the you know with the instructions? Yeah. Like, well, you know, 
actually, clinical studies have had to deal with that. You know, it's much more serious when you have a child and there's like a cancer therapy and you get put in the control group, right? This is easy. This is music. So I think other groups have worked out how to deal with that. You usually um, offer an alternative or you end up putting them in the treatment group either way. You just do it in they're their right. they're their own control or something like that. You can stagger them and, yeah, and, exactly. and so forth. Yeah. 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 We don't we don't keep them away from opportunity for sure. <laughs> so I do you have any directions that you hope to go in the near future that we should look out for in terms of um, headline making studies that are gonna come out of your lab? Well, hopefully bunches, but um, the thing that we're uh, working on right now is better understanding the role of inflammation. I mentioned it earlier because I do think that, you know, epidemiological studies, preclinical studies, um, that would be animal studies, show us that inflammation can play a major role in central nervous system development, even below, you know, what you would think of. It's not that a mom has to get, you know, really sick or deal with a serious illness during pregnancy, but just you have an immune system and this immune system is working for you all of the time. And the way that our immune systems work um, each individually, they even, you know, I once heard a quote about, you know, an immune system is the, is another, the only other system of the body that has a memory, you know, other than the brain. And it's so true. It's a map. Um, it's a map of our longitudinal health and the fetal immune system gets its first start in the womb. Um, but we haven't really had a good way to measure fetal immune, immune system function because immune system function is really just measured in the mom, her peripheral blood, or, you know, we can take samples from the fetus or the placenta, the, the umbilical cord at the time that the fetus is born. Um, but that doesn't really tell you about the, about the gestational story. And so my group is working to find ways to better understand not just maternal inflammation during pregnancy, but fetal inflammation, activation of the fetal immune system and how that's associated with neurological development. This is really important because epidemiological studies show us that um, children and even adults that were exposed to inflammation in utero experience higher rates of autism and schizophrenia. I told you it also can lead to preterm delivery. I think there's a really important story developing around immune function. That's so interesting. I, I look forward to learning more about it. Mariah Thomason, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. So that's it for another episode. Kishore will be back next week. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, pictures of you when you were just a fetus, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Great cooking is part art, part science. Jules Sous-Vide takes care of the science. 
cooking meat, fish, and poultry to perfection with precise temperature control. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use the code MINDS to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code MINDS. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.